Wednesday was the last day in office for Agriculture Minister Chen Ji-chung, who on Tuesday announced that his resignation had been approved. Chen attended to his regular duties on Wednesday, but got rather emotional while giving a speech at an awards ceremony. Chen's government career in agriculture started off in 2016 after he was appointed Deputy Minister of the Council of Agriculture and has since become the longest-serving agriculture minister in Taiwan. Chen says he will return to teaching at National Zhongxing University and growing sweet potato leaves at home. He chokes up and goes quiet before finishing the sentence. This is Agriculture Minister Chen Ji-chung, whose resignation has been approved. On his last day in office, he attended to his regular duties, visibly emotional. He offers a deep bow and leaves the stage, wiping off his tears back at his seat. Chen tendered his resignation twice amid a storm in public opinion over imported eggs. On Tuesday night, he took to social media with a long post confirming he was intending to step down. I've never felt wronged while I've been here, so please don't try to connect my leave to any disputes between the ruling party and opposition party. My intentions are pure. I don't belong with any faction, and I'm not in any political party. Chen was brought up in a family of farmers. In 1988, he took part in a series of protests against the government's agricultural policies. Under the Thai administration, Chen was appointed to the Council of Agriculture, making his way from deputy minister to minister and setting a record for the longest tenure in the council. In 2023, Chen became the first minister of the Ministry of Agriculture after the council's upgrade in August. But just 50 days later, he decided to finish his seven-and-a-half-year career as a public servant. I am very thankful for having a superior like her. I held many meetings with the president and I often argued with her. But in the end, she always respected my expertise and the issues I insisted on. It was the same thing when I said I was stepping down. Chen spoke fondly of his interactions with President Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP support. He says he's already decided on what to do next. I came here from National Zhongxing University, so after today is over, I'll go back to school tomorrow. If you have time, you can come visit me in Taichung or Pingtung, and I'll share some of my homegrown sweet potato leaves with you all. Already, Chen is listed as a speaker in a course on economic theory on the university's official webpage. Chen is returning to teaching and farming in central and southern Taiwan. For him, it'll be an opportunity to stay away from politics and any distractions that come with the territory. DPP presidential candidate Lai Qingde is rising in the polls. According to the latest figures by RW News, Lai has support from 42.52% of the public. That's significantly higher than TPP candidate Koa at 24.23% and KMT candidate Ho Yi at 22.25%. Trailing in fourth place is independent candidate Terry Goh with just 6.58%. On Wednesday, Go kicked off a tour of 10 cities and counties 
in an attempt to collect more than 290,000 signatures in order to register for the presidential race as an independent. He and his running mate, Tammy Lai, started off to tour in Banqiao in New Taipei. When asked about his low support rate, the business tycoon simply said the actual public support for him is higher than what the ratings figure shows. Meanwhile, Ho Yi had a lot on his plate during a two-and-a-half-day visit to Washington, D.C. The KMT presidential candidate met with members of American think tanks, as well as current and former members of the executive and legislative branches. All in all, Ho met with 16 U.S. lawmakers, but did not meet with high-ranking officials, such as former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. In a whirlwind of action, U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan receives a box of Taiwanese tea and the business card of presidential hopeful Ho Yoi. That's oh. a very special gift. <laughs> Taiwan crisis 1996. <laughs> the mention of the year 1996 was intentional, as that was the year Sullivan had gone on patrol missions as a Marine during the third Taiwan Strait crisis. With KMT lawmaker Johnny Chang at Ho's side, the two Taiwanese politicians tried to foster friendships with U.S. senators. But Ho may have come to the U.S. at the wrong time, as White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was having a 12-hour meeting with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Malta. The meeting's main topic of discussion was peace in the Taiwan Strait. I've proposed a strategy based on three Ds, which means we want to use deterrence so that the mainland doesn't launch an attack. We don't want them to feel free to start a war. We want to prepare for war, not start a war. In only two days, Ho Yi managed to meet a host of U.S. political figures. The list includes 11 members of the House of Representatives, five senators, and word on the street is that Ho talked with multiple members of the executive branch during a meeting with the American Institute in Taiwan. He also dined with former U.S. government officials, including former secretary and deputy secretaries of defense. In the future, we'll now have ways to handle Taiwan Strait security and regional security. Through exchanges like this, we can get to know one another. The visit seemed to be smooth sailing, but Ho's trip to the U.S. did have a few hiccups. Ho had been rumored to be planning to meet former and current U.S. House Speakers Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, but the meetings did not come to fruition. During media interviews before the visit, which included meetings with many think tanks, Ho said he wouldn't mention the so-called 1992 consensus while abroad. But on September 18th, Ho penned an article that was published in the American magazine Foreign Affairs that did mention it. In the letter, Ho pointed out that he supported the 1992 consensus with the ROC Constitution as a prerequisite, adding that he was against Taiwanese independence and that he opposed China's one country, two systems framework to unify Taiwan with the mainland. Critics have said Ho's stance on the 1992 consensus was outdated and lacking substance. I think this shows that there's a disparity between the KMT's positions and what the world believes. I encourage the KMT to communicate more with our friends and scholars from other countries to help the party understand the international community and how they see Taiwan. Ho's article mentioned the controversial 1992 consensus, which the KMT touts as a touchstone for peace in the Taiwan Strait. But amid a lack of support for the so-called consensus among Taiwan's general public, it is unlikely to gain endorsement by the U.S. government. At the United Nations General Assembly on Tuesday, the president of Paraguay, Santiago Peña, voiced support for Taiwan to join the UN. This is what he said. Paraguay expresa su apoyo a la República de China, Taiwan, para ser parte integral 
Paraguay's government would like to express its support for the Republic of China-Taiwan to be an integral part of the United Nations system. In 1971, the UN passed Resolution 2759, which recognized the People's Republic of China as the only legitimate representative of China in the UN. Since then, Taiwan has not had any representation in the international body. Now, Paraguay is Taiwan's only diplomatic ally in South America. During his presidential campaign, Peña said on many occasions that his country would maintain diplomatic relations with Taiwan. His inauguration as president last month was attended by Taiwan's vice president, Lai Qingde. Last year, a marching band from a Kyoto high school dazzled Taiwan with its show-stopping performance at National Day. As Double Ten draws near again this year, it's time to prepare for another outstanding show. This time, an equally talented band from Tokyo will take the spotlight. The performers from Tokyo University of Agriculture Second High School are nicknamed the Emerald Knights. For many of the young students, it will be their first visit to Taiwan. They promise to bring along a repertoire of beloved anime tunes. Performers march in perfect step, following the rhythm of a rousing brass band. This is the Tokyo University of Agriculture's second high school band. Their jade uniforms have won them the nickname, the Emerald Knights. They're famous in Japan and abroad, just like the Orange Devils, who visited Taiwan last year. This year, the Emerald Knights have been invited to perform at Taiwan's National Day, and they're all in a flutter. It is truly an honor to be invited. Everyone in the school is delighted. It's wonderful for the students to get this excellent experience. Needless to say, the band is rehearsing flat out after class to nail the best performance for the big day. They're practicing lots of crowd-pleasing anime-themed tunes and hope to give the audience a show the like of which they've never seen before. On weekdays, we rehearse from 4 to 6 p.m. We have more opportunity to practice outside school at the weekend, and we rehearse from about 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. The heads of the National Day Planning Office, Cao Shouchun, and the General Association of Chinese Culture, Li Houqing, made a special visit to Japan's Takasaki to greet the students as they prepare for their trip to Taiwan. We extended the invitations from about February to March this year. When the school received the message, it was a great surprise and delight. They've discussed various details with us and also with Tachibana High School to understand the past performances at National Day and whether there's anything they should be aware of or take into consideration. The students will take the trip as an opportunity to get to know Taiwan, making a flying visit to Kaohsiung. Many will have never been to the country before, and they're sure to also find a moment to sneak in a taste of Taiwan's world-famous street food. Taiwan's largest auto gear transmission parts maker, Hedda Industrial Manufacturing, is expanding in the U.S. The company will start off with an initial investment of 1.5 billion NT in the state of New Mexico. The plant will be built in three stages for a total investment of about 3 billion NT. The state government will provide a subsidy of about 3 million U.S. dollars or about 90 million NT and offer tax incentives. At an event in Taiwan, the governor of New Mexico spoke on the project. 
This partnership bodes well for the United States, global trade, economic security, and the kind of training and investment in a workforce that I think will be the model for the rest of the U.S. The $3 million is the current direct investment. That investment, however, makes them eligible for more uh, financial investments in a manufacturing tax credit that's tied to how much we do. They also get a uh, what we call is J-TIP and it's a job training program so we actually pay for the training of your workers in your manufacturing plants. The state of New Mexico and the country of Mexico are well integrated. All you have to do is cross a national border. Establishing a presence there is essentially like integrating with supply chains in Mexico. Before settling on New Mexico, representatives from Herda went on inspection tours in the U.S. states of Texas and Arizona. The firm says the state's integration with Mexico will allow it to better provide parts to North American EV manufacturers with plants in Mexico. In addition, land prices, workers and the cheapest solar power in the U.S. make New Mexico an attractive candidate for lowering costs. A hospital in western Ukraine dug basement tunnels that offer more than just shelter for patients and staff. When air raid sirens go off, doctors can provide care to patients and even perform surgeries as the underground hallways are connected to makeshift rooms. FTV reporter Wen Yuping reports from Ukraine. This hospital is located in Rivna, a city in western Ukraine. Ever since the war began last year, the hospital has been in a state of emergency management. In just three months, a large number of workers dug out long tunnels starting from the basement. This room has six beds, so here doctors can perform emergency surgeries on soldiers. Going in all different directions, these underground hallways have six surgical beds and 60 regular hospital beds. Whenever we hear the air raid siren, all the patients and doctors can escape danger by hiding here in the underground shelter. Located in the center of Rivna, this hospital has a 100-year history and 700 beds. A large number of injured soldiers have come here since the war broke out, but the hospital did not reveal the official number of wartime patients. At the beginning of the war, there was insufficient medical supplies, but now it's a bit better. Yet we still feel like we're missing this or missing that. We always feel like there's not enough equipment and workers. The FTV team received permission from both the patient and the hospital to film what was called a special case. Once the team stepped inside the operating room, they witnessed a heart-wrenching sight. There's a soldier lying on the operating table. His right leg was badly injured by a drone explosion and he no longer has toes. This scene shows the cruel reality of war. The situation here makes you want to cry. These young people are suffering. They didn't die on the front lines, but their injuries haven't healed. Despite this, there's a lot of bravery in their hearts. According to statistics, there are at least 20,000 amputees in Ukraine. Surrounded by the sounds of war, another type of cruel battle is taking part in the country's healthcare system. There's insufficient prosthetics and assistive devices, a lack of healthcare technicians, and amputees need both physical and mental therapy.
Taiwan is seeing a rise in enterovirus cases, which experts say may be fueled by the start of the academic year. Last week, Taiwan tallied more than 12,000 visits to doctors or the ER by people coming down with the disease, a rise of 5% from the previous week. The CDC says children are more likely to be infected by relatives or by classmates at schools, extracurricular classes or daycare centers. Washing hands with soap and water and general cleanliness are good ways to prevent an infection. The waiting room of the clinic is packed. There's people with colds and plenty of parents with children that have caught enterovirus. Cases of the disease are on the rise, worrying many families. Children are still young, so if they get infected, they get a fever and feel bad. Usually the peak comes in May or June, but after school starts in September, students go to class and get together, kicking off another small epidemic. That's the path enterovirus follows usually. In any case, autumn is just around the corner, but it is still quite hot. That contributes to small enterovirus outbreaks. The school year has only just started, but according to the CDC, already 12,982 people saw a doctor or went to the ER with enterovirus last week. That's a rise of 5% from the previous week, and higher than the threshold of 11,000 cases for it to be considered an epidemic. The wave is driven by the Coxsackie A virus and enterovirus 71, which is more likely to cause severe illness. Last week, there were more than 12,900 visits to clinics or the ER by patients with enterovirus. That marks a rise from the previous week. It's likely due to the start of the school year, when children are more in contact with each other. We'll continue monitoring the situation. The CDC reminds the general public that enterovirus is highly contagious, especially among children in the same family, school, extracurricular classes or daycare centers. Frequent hand washing and cleaning and disinfecting spaces is the best way to keep the disease at bay. Today we take you to meet Professor Yang Mengzhe, who shot an award-winning documentary about a Taiwanese prisoner of war. Yang tells the harrowing tale of a man who served in the Imperial Japanese Navy during World War II and was later imprisoned by the Soviets at a Siberian labor camp. FTV reporter Stephanie Yang spoke to Yang to find out more. One day I will return home follows the story of Taiwanese prisoner of war Lai Xingyang. The documentary was directed by Taiwanese professor Yang Mengzhe. He was inspired to create the documentary after a Japanese academic told him that there were seven Taiwanese prisoners of war in labor camps in Siberia during World War II. I was shocked. I had never heard the story of Taiwanese being forced into labor camps in Siberia. I felt that I had a duty here. No other academics in Taiwan had ever conducted such research. I started to sort out the information when I came back, and through the guidance of an academic from Japan, I started to investigate veterans in Taiwan. A Japanese scholar named Kobayashi gave me some information, and then I traveled to Siberia to find the place where the labor camps for Japanese soldiers were. 
Of the seven prisoners of war, Lai Xingyang was the only one still alive when Yang began his research. Lai was 91 years old and initially didn't want to be interviewed because it was too hard for him to revisit his wartime experience. But after Yang visited him several times, he agreed to return to Siberia to film the documentary. The documentary took eight years to complete and was filmed in seven countries. Unfortunately, there was only one prisoner of war left. His name is Lai Xingyang, and he is of Hakka heritage. In 2015, I found him through my connections. It took me five years to find Lai Xingyang. I found him, but he initially refused to be interviewed by us. He said, each time I talk about it, I experience psychological pain. He wasn't willing to be interviewed. Later, through the introduction of relatives and friends, I formally visited him again. I spoke to him in his native language, Japanese. It touched his heart. In 2018, we went to Siberia. He was 94 years old. He carried an oxygen tank and two photos of his dead son. The entire journey was full of difficulties. The film received several international awards, including at the Five Continents International Film Festival in Venezuela, the Chicago International Film Festival, and the Tokyo International Short Film Festival. Aside from creating the film, Yang also wrote a book about Lai's life. I hope to preserve this history. I made this documentary not to win an award, but because I had a duty as a Taiwanese, as an academic, and as someone in a profession in East Asian history. Since I was given this task, I had to complete it. Three days before he passed away at the age of 96, he watched his unfinished documentary on his mobile phone. He took a deep breath with the tubes in his mouth and nose. It was very touching. So we must preserve this piece of history. The documentary will be released in Taipei in October. Yang hopes that through the film and book, Lai's story will be preserved for generations to come. FTV reporter Stephanie Yang and Dai Yalun in Taipei.